welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not-So-Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. We're here with Brad Freeman today. And I should warn everyone, for some reason, I think you can probably hear that now, there's some construction going on in the background. Uh, Very unfortunate timing that it decided to start right when we were recording. I don't think it'll be too big of a nuisance, but I'll make sure to mute my microphone when we're not, when I'm not talking. Uh, But Brad, this was your pick today. We're talking Green Thumb Industries not something I don't think many people know what this is, but uh, what kind of made you attracted to this? And uh, I think it belongs in your portfolio. Yeah. Uh, so it, this is one of the three multi-state operator cannabis growing selling companies that I own in the portfolio. Um, it's the smallest position of the three, not not because I don't like the company as much as the other two, but just because the valuation is a little steeper than the other two and the fundamentals are extremely similar. Um, but it's, I mean, we'll, we'll get into its balance sheet strength and relative balance sheet strength and why that appeals to me. But to be honest, uh, my elixir of choice is not alcohol, but it is cannabis. So um, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the of the product category. I'm a big believer in, in all the various health benefits and alternative use cases for it. Um, so that was really the inspiration for exploring the industry and then seeing how well these companies are doing um, made me pull the trigger. Well, we've got some, uh, it sounds like we're going to have some anecdotal evidence then, I imagine. Sure. So. That's right. I was going to make that same joke as well. Um, we're going to get into it. But first, I need to talk about our sponsor for this Tuesday show, and that is Potential Multibaggers. The aim of the Potential Multibaggers service, as you guys probably have heard by now, is to find stocks that can go up 10x over the next 10 years or compound at 26% per year. And right now, a lot of the stuff that Chris and the team over there are looking at have I mean, they've done quite, quite well over the long term, but over the recent few months, I mean, now like there's some real, and I don't want to say, well, what's a buying opportunity or not, but prices have gotten a lot more attractive. And the great thing about this service is if you're someone that maybe, you know, is more of a novice or an investor or doesn't know stuff as kind of a, it's not your full-time job. Chris really provides research and timely research. I think I get like five notes from him a week about the companies he's following. So if these type of companies, Shopify, C Limited, Okta, Square, Livongo, and there's plenty, plenty others. Well, Livongo is now Teladoc. But if those are companies and the type of companies that you follow, his research reports can be very supplemental to your process. So if you want to become a multi and get all this and more as a part of the potential multi-bagger service, go to Seeking Alpha and look for From Growth to Value. Google it or go to at From Value on Twitter. All right, let's get into it. Uh, Ryan, before oh, we move on, I'd also say that uh, the if these are companies, so a lot of the companies in this portfolio we've mentioned on the show before, and if it's a company or like a business model that you've liked, and now you're starting to become more uh, inclined to potentially buy shares because of the price as well, it's a really good, easy way to get up to speed on some of those companies because he provides so much coverage and it's pretty thorough as well. So I've kind of find, found myself doing that lately. Uh, but yeah, I'll get it. I'll get into the business. And so as as Brett mentioned, we're talking about Green Thumb Industries. Um, and Green Thumb, basically, they manufacture, distribute, and market several different cannabis 
consumer pack. They call it consumer packaged goods, but I guess we would call it cannabis packaged goods. It's uh, CBG. Yeah, CBG. Right. The uh, <laughs> the the packaged goods or the stock keeping units that they have consist of the following product category. So it's flour, which is exactly what you're probably picturing in your head. There's pre rolls, concentrates, vapes, capsules. I, now, I don't know all of these. Brad might be more of an expert. Tinctures, edibles, topicals, and other cannabis-related products. So it really spans the whole cannabis space um, in terms of what you might be looking for product-wise. Um, and the products are primarily generated from plant material that Green Thumb themselves grows and processes. So in to some extent, you could call it a vertically integrated, although they also sell to other retail stores. So that's the other part of their business. The products are distributed and marketed to either third-party licensed retail cannabis stores or Green Thumb's own retail stores. Um, and then for a sense of scale, Green Thumb has 16 manufacturing facilities and 66 open retail locations across 14 states. So these retail locations are primarily traditional brick and mortar stores, e-commerce stuff is limited because of regulation. So like even like having someone come in and pick it up for you. Like there's so much regulatory, I guess, barriers to letting that stuff happen. And so this is really kind of the traditional brick and mortar. They grow it, manufacture the products, sell it in their own stores or sell it to other retailers. Um, and then last year, about 29% of revenue came from their consumer packaged goods business. And then 71% came from their retail store. So they really do generate a lot of revenue from their own stores. And then, uh, as far as history goes, if you're reading through the 10K and you look at the transaction history, you're probably going to get lost. I got lost. It took me, there have been, all right. So it says the company was, and I'm going to let Brad step in here after I, I come up. But it says, all, all I'm going to say is don't let that deter you because the company is, is thriving fundamentally. So it's, it's shady and weird as that looks. Just keep reading on because I promise it gets better. But go ahead. It is. Yeah. It's like the first five, maybe in the first 10 pages of the 10K, it's like, so the, the initial company was incorporated in 1979 under the name Dalmatian Resources Limited. Um, and it subsequently changed its name four different times since. And finally in 2018, the company completed another transaction where it changed its name from Bayswater Uranium Corporation to Green Thumb Industries. And I, I, I looked at this for a while and I could not understand the transactions that went on. I think the way I'm grasping it is that this was basically a shell company. It was a tiny public company that did some sort of stock merger with Green Thumb to take in order to take Green Thumb public. Um, and I may be getting that wrong. It was really kind of hard to follow. But as for Green Thumb specifically, they were founded in 2014 in Chicago by a gentleman named Ben Kovler or Kovler. Um, and between Ben and a few investment partners, they launched with one dispensary in Illinois. There is some fascinating background here, actually. So Ben's grandfather basically did what Ben's trying to do now back in 1930 when prohibition was repealed. So Ben's grandpa, his name is Harry Blum, was the president of the Jim Beam Distilling Company. And Ben's father ran the company after his grandfather um, before they ended up selling it to the American Tobacco Company in the 60s. So the Cuddlers apparently are considered part of Chicago's elite um, and Ben's dad was one of the minor minority owners of the Chicago Bulls. And so he, and he references this in interviews, which is basically like, I'm trying to replicate basically my grandpa's uh, model, 
except for cannabis instead of alcohol at the time. And so that's kind of how they got started. I think that maybe helps him in terms of raising money with his pitch. Um, but yeah, that's, that's basically the business today. Yeah. Uh, I'll get into industry and competition, fairly simple one, but with a lot of, I mean, the size, like the, the size of the industry is simple, but the regulation stuff is really, really complicated, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in the second half. But the cannabis market right now in the United States is estimated to be about $24 billion a year. And that is according to Green Thumbs Management. They do like to talk about this stuff on the conference call. So you can get an overview of the industry because that is, you know, it's part of their bull case that they're trying to pitch investors. Management, and again, they might be on the bullish side. They expect it to be about $80 billion a year a decade from now. So about tripling. Um, and then for reference, if you kind of want, you know, some states might be more into cannabis than others, but for a mature state like Washington state where cannabis is, or it's 21 plus and there's no restricted licenses. So you basically have, you know, cannabis shops all over the place. Um, there's, not, there's not like four in the state, like some places have. There's about $1.5 billion in spending a year and the state has less than 10 million people. I think it's in between seven and 8 million. So if you expand that out and kind of assume that cannabis is going to be legalized across the nation um, of the United States sometime this decade, I think $80 billion is reasonable, uh, but it's still, you know, quite a bit of growth from here. And then any competitors, there are a ton out there right now, but I'll just highlight a few uh, because there are, you know, this isn't some, you know, anyone can really start growing cannabis if they get the license and anyone can start up a store if they have the license. Um, so the competitors include Verano, Planet 13, Cura Leaf, True Leave. Is that how I'm saying it? Am I saying that right, Brad? Okay. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of local shops. So the competitors, it's it's almost like, I really think the best comparison for people in their minds is to just think of the alcohol space. Like, you can buy alcohol at a lot of different spots, the grocery store, the specialty liquor store, the convenience shop, you know, the 7-Eleven or even the local one. And I think that's kind of what's going to evolve here. And, you know, companies like Green Thumb are trying to really capture that market and become kind of one of the top brands in the industry. All right, Brad, do you want to talk about management and ownership? Yeah, for sure. And, and just, just to kind of expand on what you were saying, it, it, it will really become about branded wholesale if, 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 the, if the retail segment goes the way that I think a lot of us think it's going to go, which is um, states kind of evolving from a, a, a more restrictive limited licensing system um, to one where, where a 7-Eleven can sell you a joint. Um, and, and in that case, brands mean everything and retail shops don't mean nearly as much. Um, so, so I think just good to keep in mind. Uh, but from a management and ownership perspective, so founder... Founder CEO is Ben Kovler. There's a little bit of drama there too around him uh, taking the name from somebody else and, and getting sued for it. But that that has since um, it's since been settled. He doesn't have a lot of experience outside of uh, founding and, and running Green Thumb. He he runs a site called Invest for Kids, which is essentially an investment pitch competition that's held annually in Chicago. Um, as as Ryan's history section kind of hinted at, he's he's deeply integrated in the Chicago community, um, which, which is important um, in in this in this politically dominated industry where, where politicians' decisions do matter a lot, um, clout matters a lot, and, and Ben Kohler certainly has more of that um, than, than pretty much any other CEO in the industry. Um, again, family involved in, in the end of Prohibition, so family again involved in the end of Prohibition 2.0. It's kind of beautifully poetic. Um, and then I, I won't go too much further into the complicated history. The 10K covers it a lot, um, if you're interested. 
76% Glassdoor rating is pretty low, but very limited review. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, do you want to say what a Glassdoor rating is? Because I think, you know, we kind of know, but oh. some novice investors might not know what that means. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, good good thinking. So Glassdoor is, is essentially um, a crowd a crowdfunding or crowd, crowd an aggregation site for, for racking up employee and employer reviews. Uh, so um, you'll get anonymous tips, and, and I'm sure some of them are from random people who don't actually work for the company and and can be and can be kind of um, inaccurate and, and misguided. But there there's some good information there, especially when you have uh, companies with thousands of reviews instead of a hundred like Green Thumb has. Um, so not super important in this case, but it can be sometimes. Uh, CFO is Anthony Georgiadis. He was the former COO of an art group called Wendover, which essentially seemed like a, a B2B decorator. Uh, he was the former senior associate for CIBC Partners, which is a Chicago PE firm, uh, and then the head of capital markets, um, also uh, was with Chesapeake Capital Partners for a long time, which is another pretty prominent PE firm. Uh, the general counsel is Beth Burke. He, she was actually a former chief compliance officer at Aon, so a pretty impressive experience from her. Uh, and then she was a general studies major with a, with an economics concentration from U of M, exactly like me. So you know she's amazing. And then the CIO is Swatin Siegel, and I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation, so I'm sorry, uh, sir, but he is the former director of direct consumer and customer resource management at Adidas. And he was a manager at Sears before it went bankrupt, but we, we won't hold that against him. Um, in terms of ownership, so Kovler owns 61% of the super voting shares, what it's called in the, in the 10K, and that's 38% of the overall voting power. Uh, this is a few months delayed. And, and so so when it comes out, I'm sure it'll be a little different, but there hasn't been too much notable selling from, from insiders. So it should be pretty accurate. The CFO is Anthony Georgiatis, who owns 9% of the overall voting power. He's been there since 2016, which, which is a pretty consistent theme of long tenures on the executive team. And really like to see a CFO having skin in the game just, just makes me more comfortable that he's going to be around for a long time. Um, and that suite won't be a revolving door. Uh, AG Funding Group, who th this is uh, this is the entity associated with Andy Grossman, who is who is a senior manager at uh, Green Thumb. He owns 5.75% of the voting power. Again, has been there from the very beginning. And then the former CEO, Peter Cadence, I, I think this was the CEO when they took the name from Green Thumb. And it, it was really hard to dig up any history about this. And I've been looking for a long time because I own the company. So you can imagine how difficult it is to dig up. But um, he, he, he still owns 9.3% of the voting power. It seemed like he, uh, he, he was involved very, very early on and then kind of uh, fizzled away to pursue philanthropic endeavors. Uh, maybe he was pushed out. Maybe he wasn't, depending on who you ask. But, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's a good place to leave off there. Yeah, they have an interesting ownership structure for sure. This isn't some, well, I guess that's what it is with a lot of cannabis companies. Yeah. You don't have, you have a lot of people that have to avoid them. I'll hit valuation quick. Um, market capitalization is $4.9 billion as well. We're in kind of a volatile market right now. So really just check um, and re reference those numbers. Tickers, GTBIF. They're on the OTC markets. Uh, they're not allowed on the NASDAQ or NY NYSE right now. Um, enterprise value, which... I'm going to explain this quite a bit. I might not explain on every show, but since it's very important to how we do our valuation work, I'm just going to explain it a few times. Enterprise value is market cap minus cash plus debt. So basically any sort of like at short-term assets like cash that are basically available to pay out the shareholders. And then you want to add back any sort of liabilities that they're going to have to pay out because sometimes if a company has a lot of debt, um, 
the market cap isn't really indicative of what you're actually buying and all the liabilities you're buying as an investor. But in this case, enterprise value isn't that different. And it's about $4.76 billion. Um, EV to gross profit is 10.3. And that's just enterprise value divided by gross profit. Enterprise value to operating cash flow is 44. And that's enterprise value divided by operating cash flow, as it kind of states there. And it's, it's kind of expensive there, but you know they are still in growth mode. No positive free cash flow because they are investing to grow out their infrastructure right now. They do have quite a bit of capex spend relative to their size, um, and we can you know kind of probably talk about that later of how much they should be spending, um, what kind of runway are they going to have to do to grow, how much are they going to have to spend over the next few years, and then they have around ten million dilutive securities. And what a dilutive security is is just a stock option, a warrant, or whatever that isn't in the share count right now, but if exercised would dilute the shares outstanding and dilute your, if you're an investor, dilute your ownership stake proportionally. So they have about 10 million dilutive securities outstanding versus about 241 million total shares outstanding, which isn't terrible, but we'll have a tiny bit of dilution and you should probably expect a decent amount of dilution going forward. They do like to use their stock when buying out um, other retailers and stuff like that. All right, Ryan, do you want to hit earnings? Yeah, so I'll start with the last 12 month numbers uh, and then move, move to the most recent quarter. So the last 12 month revenue was $827 million. That was up 81% from the 12 months prior. Uh, and then they had 56% gross margins on that. And then they generated about $107 million in operating cash flow, but they spent $128 million in capital expenditures as they're trying to build out the different stores, their manufacturing facilities. So they really are in, they're plowing most of their cash that they generate from the business right back into investing to hopefully expand that operating cash flow in the future. Um, and then in terms of the third quarter, so their Q3 revenue was $234 million. That was up 49% year over year. Their operating income was $59 million. That's up 50% year over year. But they had to, and so this is an important part, and this is why Brett referenced the operating cash flow figure. On that $59 million in operating income, they had to pay $37 million in income taxes. So, and part of, and this is one of my lowlights, so I'm, I guess I'm spoiling it already, but cannabis businesses cannot under be since they're i guess not recognized i believe by the us whatever uh whatever the tax law system is they can't deduct ordinary business expenses um from their taxes so they are essentially paying even though they maybe generate let's say in this case 50 million dollars in operating income a lot of those expenses where a typical business would be able to write it off, uh, whether it's employee uh, compensation of some sort, uh, cannabis businesses can't do that. And so the, it really is a, a disadvantage compared to traditional businesses, which just means focus on the, the operating cash flow number includes that income tax expense. So just focus on the operating cash flow is sort of the overlying, overlaying theme here. Um, Brad, do you have anything to add? Yeah, just, just to put a, a title around what you're talking about, it's called 280E, which is a tax provision that that prevents these these deductions that Ryan was talking about. And it's really it really treats uh, cannabis growers like like drug kingpins that operate in in, in little state islands, um, because in in the eyes of the federal government and the IRS, it is a federally illegal plant. Um, so I mean that they're they are viewed in the exact same light 
um, from taxation um, bodies as, 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 as any other drug you can possibly think of um, and, and, other, and, and other dangerous goods that, that we've made illegal. So uh, just a very unique part of, of investing in the space, um, something that can turn into a large tailwind down the road, but there's no guarantee that it will. Yeah, the, and at least for now, all the rule is equal across the board for cannabis businesses. So there's at least parity in terms of their competition. But when you look at it like a traditional business where you maybe would have evaluated it on a market cap to operating income multiple, you you have to do either operating income after taxes or operating cash flow because it's just not truly indicative of the cash you're getting as a shareholder. Um, yeah. And then. Other, I mean, their, their effective tax rate is 62 <laughs> percent. It's, yeah. it's uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, it seems it seems super high. Um, and then they, uh, I, I guess, other notable things they did there in the quarter, they acquired Dharma Pharmaceuticals uh, and this helped them expand into the Virginia market. So I guess Brad maybe knows this a little better than we do, but I believe this is sort of their expansion model, which is when new states uh legalize cannabis they acquire companies that have existing licenses in those states in order to expand am i getting that right yeah well in illinois i mean illinois was the was the home base so they kind of had that established but pretty much everywhere else you're, you're getting it exactly right okay and then uh do you want to talk about the balance sheet and liquidity yeah so another another interesting uh concept uniquely for the cannabis space and i'll, and I'll try to mention why but in terms of cash and equivalents, they have 285 million on the balance sheet versus 83 million year over year. That's following a series of, of warrant and debt raises uh, that they underwent. Um, they have 34 million in warrant liabilities, 205 million in notes payable, but only 7.6 million of that is actually current. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty long dated, uh, or it's pretty long dated credit. Uh, the interest rates on the warrant and debt offerings range from seven to 12 percent. So. Uh, that that that's that's the interesting point for cannabis. So um, beyond 280E reform, something called uh, safe safe banking, which is another piece of legislation that cannabis pools like myself are looking for, uh, would would allow um, would allow for. We we're talking about how it's the ticker's GTBIF, and that's because it's it's listed on these junior Canadian exchanges. So safe banking would allow them to uplist on, onto the New York Stock Exchange um, or, or the Nasdaq, and it would also allow them to do things like get business insurance. Um, and, and receive institutional support that they've been unable to garner because of federal laws. So that seven to twelve percent cost of capital is a product of, of safe banking not yet happening, and is yet another profit um, headwind associated with investing in cannabis that can potentially, not definitely will, but can potentially turn into a large margin tailwind down the road. And just just for reference, that seven to twelve percent is among the, the as, as actually as funny as this sounds is among the best in the cannabis space. So. Um, True Leave, which Brett talked about a little bit, has, has issued a, a debt offering right around 7%. Um, Green Thumb and True Leave are the only two companies that have ever gotten an interest rate in, in that area. You, you see some lower quality firms, not profitable and smaller, that are paying over 20% cost of capital. Um, so, I mean, it is it, it just it, it very much so raises the bar for balance sheet health and for profitability right now because interest expenses are going to be so are going to be so large for the foreseeable future until this changes. Um, and then from a dilution perspective, uh, Brett, Brett hit on it. So I'll, I'll just say, um, expect 5% dilution going forward. Uh, I, I would not be surprised at all if, if they raised more warrants or raised more options and, and sold them um, to fund more growth because they are fully in growth mode and fully in land grab mode and grab all the licenses we possibly can um, to, build as, to build as big as they possibly can in the near future. So um, good place to leave off. 
Yeah, do given that the the debt is so expensive, the interest rates are so high. Do you think it's more you know preferable to just have them just do stock offerings? I mean, why even yeah. take on the debt? Yeah, I think. Um, I, I mean, they 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 take on the debt because they think the the return on investment can can be above twelve percent, and I think yeah. um, it's it's really it's important to balance um, dilution, which I know you know very well, and not over diluting shareholders and um, and 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 raising and and raising debt. So so without pissing off shareholders and and diluting the share count from where is it right now two hundred forty one to four hundred eighty million. They can raise capital to, to fuel growth without um, without eroding this debt EPS uh, so quickly. But but again, the twelve percent cost of capital does make it so that these warrant liabilities are somewhat favorable. They can do it without making anyone upset. Yeah, they're yeah. in a tough situation. I mean, it's just I, they probably have an easy way to uh, analyze it, but it's just whichever form of capital is more expensive. And on top of it, sounds like. If you're if they dilute too much, it sounds like they could dilute their voting power as owners um, or as executives. And it sounds like there may be a strange. Uh, it sounds like there may be someone uh, that owns a lot of stock that they don't really want to own that much. Uh, Kovler doesn't want to give that up. Yeah, it's a good point. So if they dilute, they could be potentially diluting their power within the business. Okay. Yep. All right. That all sounds good. Let's take an ad break ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? (sighs) All blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. All right. Welcome back in. Next up, we're going to hit anecdotal evidence. Brad, um, you know, what do you think yeah. of their brands? Uh, so Green Thumb doesn't sell in the state of Michigan, um, but uh, they do sell in the state of Nevada, which I visit frequently to, to, to see friends. Um, and they actually purchased my, my favorite cannabis brand called Cannabiotics uh, and, and integrated all of their genetics into their, their brand. So yes, I I am a big anecdotal fan of Green Thumb personally. Do you, okay, so here's my, and I guess I'll just go ahead and say that I don't really have any experience product-wise. I only value I can maybe add here is I've watched some videos with the CEO and I liked him. He seems to have, sometimes these cannabis companies can have questionable leaders. Well, there's um, one we found that, uh, well, there's one we found that was arrested, right? Like 10 years ago, remember? Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, so, yeah. This just doesn't seem to be the case. This seems to be a manager that's prioritizing cash flow and running it like a true business. And uh, but I I want to ask: Do you think this is a industry where customers can get attached to one specific brand, like a Coca Cola or like a Marlboro cigarettes? Uh, yeah, I, I 
I absolutely do. Um, and, and it's, I think a great way to think about it is, is like wine or craft beer, um, that, that, that people will have different taste preferences and that there will be different levels of grow quality and, 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 and grow operations fetching different price points. Um, but the growing cannabis is a wildly complicated process. Like in, interestingly, so you, you, you can grow a couple of plants at your house and, and, and do it pretty easily, but the, but the end product that you're going to come out with is, is, is so inferior to what these companies are coming out with, um, that, that it really, it really, uh, it really does, uh, cater to brand loyalty, um, for, for me. And I'm, I'm a great example of that. Um, I, 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 when, when I, when I go to weed maps to purchase my next order, I, I immediately go to one brand that I'm looking for. Um, and, and I, and that's all that I buy. Um, so, and, and I think that's, that's the norm, not the exception. Okay. That's interesting. So it's more like the wine industry. That would yeah. be the best comparison. And I think, I think it's, it's, uh, for, for people like me who have, who are not doing it for the first time, who know what they want, that's true. But, uh, maybe if, uh, if, if Brett decided to start smoking cannabis tomorrow, which he told me before the episode he was definitely going to do. Uh, no, I'm, I'm totally kidding. But you, you, you would not be able to to tell a difference between different brands and different qualities. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I, anecdotal evidence. I don't have any. Um, for one, not really a user, and they don't operate in Washington State, so I can't get any. But I was looking at online reviews, and they all skewed positive, which I thought was a good sign uh, for Green Thumb stuff. And it seemed a lot like uh rhythm and uh what was it dog walk i think those are yeah, two of their popular ones they people seem to love those so that i think that's a great sign but again it's hard to tell in there they're very in their early stages i'd like to see them start reporting mau figures <laughs> monthly yeah. active users and daily active users so, so <laughs> Mon- those are daily out. monthly active users daily active stoners yeah. that's right that, that that is correct all right future growth opportunities brad well, what do you think is the biggest or what did you choose as a growth driver for this business sure you, you guys got i think you guys covered the, the two big ones pretty well so I'll, I'll try and get a little more creative but um these companies interestingly don't spend anything on marketing so they don't spend anything on brand awareness they're, they're in the low single digit percentages of revenue and they all are and that that's really a product of of federal laws not allowing them to to post uh, a, a weed commercial on, on ESPN in, in, in the middle of, 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 a, of a basketball game. So, I mean, when or if laws change or if they start to get a little more creative and can normalize marketing spend, um, I think that can be a large boon for converting um, what is still in some states, majority black market sales um, to the legal market. So, I mean, just despite Washington being at $1.5 billion run rate, um, that's, that's legal sales. So, there's still a black market cohort that's, that's still very much so up and running and healthy. Um, and, and this marketing, um, I think can, can not, not so much convince the existing users to, to switch from their beloved black market growers to legal growers, but convince the people entering the category to, to do so via legal means because no, no drama, no nothing. And, and I think in, in order to do this, it's going to take shifting, maybe not shifting, but, but focusing a lot, not on the flour and the joints and the actual cannabis product that's really intimidating to a lot of people to consume, but really building out these, these uh, edible categories and drink categories and um, tinctures and pills and, and, and oils and all these things that for, for everyone else besides me is, is way, is way more appealing. Um, so, so I think that's, that's where they go. If the, yeah, the, I think, well, there's two laws that I think are important in the sales and marketing part, which is one, the 280E. So like part of the reason I imagine that they limit their sales marketing or sales ex- 
expenditures just generally is because they can't deduct those expenses. But then on the marketing part, I could see a world in which the like traditional marketing is never really allowed like tobacco today. I, I mean, the, uh, and that's, that, that can be a tailwind also. So like for a lot of tobacco companies, startups ceased to exist when they weren't able to market and the incumbents uh, were able to not only keep their existing market share, but they were able to cut their marketing costs to the bone. So it, uh, I, maybe it goes more the way of that where it just can't, maybe that's an advantage or a barrier to entry. Do you guys see it that way or no? I could see it that way. Yeah. I, I, it's just, I, I see, I could see it that way for sure. I, I do see cannabis as more similar uh, as to alcohol, which is allowed to market pretty freely um, than tobacco, but, but I definitely could see it happening that way. Yeah. It could fall into both camps there. I think logically cannabis should fall in with alcohol because they're both like elixirs. Cannabis is very, uh, uh, the harm is wh- whatever, super low. But politically, that might not fly, you know, right. so I'm trying. I, I don't know. You know, you know what I mean? It, it, I, I don't know if like, yeah, politically, they might fall into the same camp as tobacco, which honestly, I think that might be a good thing if, if you're investing in an established player. Um, but yeah, Ryan, you want to hit your future growth opportunity? Sure. The uh, I mean, the, the game plan's pretty sort of their model is pretty replicable. It's very easy to understand. There aren't, I don't think any of us could provide a future growth opportunity that they haven't considered, which basically what they're going to do is as these geographies open up, they'll expand probably through acquisition to acquire the licenses and then continue to just pour CapEx into new stores or manufacturing facilities in those areas. Beyond that, I think the most important thing right now is to establish customer loyalty with your brands, because that's going to make them defensible in the event that regulations, the regulatory environment frees up and competition comes pouring in, if they have tons of customer loyalty, they're going to be okay in that environment. And they're going to be able to not only defend their position, but also uh, grow because of the customer loyalty and, and grow, get the same benefits as all the other people coming in. So doing whatever you can to really establish that I don't know if that's a loyalty rewards program. I don't know if people do that in cannabis um, or what, what needs to be done there. Um, that, that I think has to be the focus for them. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'll hit mine then. It's really just the CPG growth nationwide. I believe, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, that this is the fastest growing segment within their company. Um, and it's doing quite well right now. And what this means is just that their brand specifically, you know, dog walk, rhythm, um, Gosh, Brad mentioned some others, and they have quite a few uh, for all the different types, you know, vaping, concentrates, pure flower, pre-rolls, all that stuff. It's just getting it into as many stores and outlets as possible. And there are those restrictions right now, but as it gets freed, as you know, stuff gets freed up slowly nationwide, they should have a steady runway to do this. If e-commerce opens up, they should have a steady runway to do that as well. I think the goal for them, and this is where the, you know, this is where they can really turn into a cash cow is to get millions of people into being, you know, habitual consumers of the product, similar to a soda, candy, tobacco, alcohol, or coffee company, how they do that. And if they can and be one of the top brands there, I mean, if you look at the stocks within those categories that are very similar um, that I just listed, the leaders are 
all hundred beggars. And I think that's kind of where the opportunity lies. What do you guys think on that? Do you think, am I getting anything wrong there, Brad, on kind of my assumptions? No, I think we're sort of where you're going with it is that we are very much, the industry is very much so in consolidation mode right now. And, and, and the highest quality operators are going to scoop up as many, as many assets as they possibly can. And we are going to end up with three or four of these really large players, which is why scale and balance sheet health right now to me is so vitally important. Um, but yeah. All right, let's move on to highlights and lowlights. Brad, what do you like and dislike about this business? I should give a fair warning, you do own this stock. Um, so for anyone, you know, Brad might be biased to the bullish side here. Yeah, uh, definitely biased, but uh, leading market share position in key states and within an industry poised for a 20% organic growth year through 2030. Um, that's pretty darn appealing, not, not to mention the inorganic growth that's gonna come on top of that. Um, and again, balance sheet health is, is one of the top three in, in the industry. Um, the other two, just to mention them, Verano and Truly, both have rock solid balance sheets as well. Um, those are really the, the three, the three most solid, I think. And then you could throw Curaleaf and Cresco Labs, and they're a, a tier below. Um, but uh, from a low light perspective, uh, or in, 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 and I just want to say these companies are the polar opposite of of Canadian LPs, Canadian cannabis companies that got all that hype a few years ago and were burning cash like drunken pirates and and were, had no capital discipline legislation, while it's been a little bit annoying, has forced these companies to be wildly disciplined in how they're allocating capital. Um, so they are already profitable. I mean, I just wanted to point that out. But the low light is, is that we deal, any investor in the cannabis space inherently has to deal with puts and takes and false starts from, from Capitol Hill and from politicians. I don't like, I don't like politicians personally. Um, it's not a right wing or left wing thing. It's, it's a it's a not a not a huge fan of having um, investment exposure to political decisions and the unpredictability that coincides with it, um, which, again, is why if we get none of these regulatory tailwinds that we've kind of alluded to, it's so important that, that we're picking companies within this space that are that are succeeding without these regulatory tailwinds, because despite the fact that I'm confident safe banking and 280E reform will come, um, I don't know and nobody knows uh, except for maybe Chuck Schumer or somebody else on Capitol Hill that has insider information. but. Um, Dealing with politicians is never fun and you have to deal with politicians here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's sort of the similar lowlights that I have. I, I'll get to my highlights first. So they are growing fast. Um, they're prioritizing cash flow and it seems like a well-run company. And then they also have a good amount of liquidity in an industry where that isn't very accessible. Um, and the, as Brad alluded to, the regulatory requirements here have forced them to be lean and they're able to generate cash flow in 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 the face of really difficult uh, operating environments like if you can't deduct ordinary expenses and you're still able to generate a good sizable chunk of your revenue in cash that's really kind of impressive um, low lights for me though it's pretty much all around regulation so the unfavorable tax treatment that does stink um, and who knows, I guess, when or if that would be appealed. Um, we talked to a CFO of a company that has to deal with this as well. And they said everyone in the industry is really pushing for it. So I think it's more of a when than if. Um, and then the other ones, they, they, there's limited access to banking. And then on top of that, there isn't a huge proclivity to lend to companies like this because they don't get access to U.S. bankruptcy protections. Um, and so debt holders on companies like this are sort of, 
that the margin of safety isn't quite as high. Um, and so if you're thinking as a stockholder, well, that doesn't affect me, that, that in a lot of cases is going to be where they're going to get their capital. So that is part of why they also command higher interest rates. Um, and so a lot of that stuff is all regulatory, but it hurts the business nonetheless. Yeah, I agreed on, on all fronts there. Um, I'll hit my highlights. I mean, excluding the tax holdup, solid unit economics, uh, you know, you kind of go into this industry and you're like, okay, what are the gross margins going to look like? And so far it looks pretty solid, uh, you know, growing market like Brad highlighted with all those details there. And they have, and I think the biggest highlight for me is they have a really long runway to reinvest for growth. Um, and as long as they're getting a good return on that, I think that's just, it's just fantastic because a lot, I mean, especially a lot of industries out there, you see companies that have good returns on invested capital, but they don't have a lot of opportunities to reinvest for cannabis. It's quite clear. Uh, the reviews online seem to say that the products are high quality. So, you know, hopefully they're moving into that place where, you know, consumers kind of see them as the top dog. They see them as a quality brand. They'll go to them, you know, every time if they want that consistent, um, well, experience, I guess I would call it from cannabis. Lowlights though, you know, uh, they are getting investigated by the feds for a pay to play for state licenses. Like Brad and Ryan were talking about is an advantage that they kind of know everyone within that industry and especially in Illinois. And that was probably how they got those licenses. But on the flip side, there was, there's been some allegations that they did it, you know, corruptly. Um, so I don't think that's a huge low light, but it's something to watch out for, you know, income taxes. We talked about that. And then, the big low light, I think, for me is that no brands have the proven staying power yet. Some of the brands within Green Thumbs could become the dominant one, but I think there's still at least five years until we figure that out. Um, all right, let's move on to bull case. Brad, what, uh, looks like you got a lot of details here. What do you think you go right for this business over the next few years? Uh, in terms of bull case, uh, I, the, the, the high likelihood of regulatory events are 280 reform, safe banking, um, and continued state legalization. So those are the three things that I'm expecting in the bull case. Um, what this does is vastly cuts cost of capital, vastly cuts effective tax rates. Um, and then assuming the company can grow at a slightly better um, than the 20% compounded, compounded industry growth rate with the, the M&A it's probably gonna do in the future, call it 25%. Um, and so I, I wanted to do kind of a quantitative bull case this time, because I think I think that that paints a great picture of growth at a reasonable price here. but. Um, that would get you by by 2030 to about a little over six billion in cash, and with pretty conservative cash flow margin assumptions, about one billion in free cash flow. So if you plug a 15 times forward free cash multiple on that, you get a nine year compounded return of 14.3 percent. Which I mean, I'll, I'll take that any day of the week. Um, and, and again, that that's with a 15 times multiple. That's with no really no outperformance on an organic on an organic basis. Um, growing and and with, with with pretty conservative, I tried to be assumptions. So um, and, and and that also assumes two regulatory events happening in its favor um, that are far from certainties. Uh, so keep that in mind as well. Yeah, and I think all those estimates are realistic numbers. Um, the bull case is you kind of just covered it all, which is state by state. Uh, this gets legalized, and Green Thumb steadily expands. Uh, I think there's going to be some multiple compression 
just inevitably. I don't think a lot of companies trade at 40 times operating cash flow forever. And so there will be some, but I think they can definitely grow into it. Um, it will probably get, I imagine it'll get closer to a sin stock multiple than say a software multiple, but uh, nevertheless, I think the returns could be good. There are some things that need to go right though, um, which is, which they don't have that much control over. That's, that's the only thing. I guess that's more for the bear case, but the, uh, yeah. Hold your horses. That's, we'll, yeah, we'll that's the that. only thing that would prohibit the bull case. Right. Yeah. And I'll get mine. It's, it's very similar. I guess, you know, Brad outlined those numbers really well. You just have steady end market growth. It lifts demand and then the tax burden goes away. I mean, if sales per share double, which at their current pace, they should do within a few years and then gross margins stay the same, their price to gross profit will come down to five, which is below an average market multiple there. And if tax rates normalize, they could easily get a 10% earnings yield. I mean, that's like, I mean, in that scenario, you'd expect the stock to be higher. Yeah, there's a value. Um, there's a very, the valuation would re-rate if that, if the tax laws, if they got treated like an ordinary business. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the bull case. Uh, bear case though, Brad, what do you think could go wrong here? Yeah, and also the other re-rating event we'd have uh, just before I go into bear case would be that uplisting event, which which would finally allow institutional dollars to flow into this company because it's the, the investor base is predominantly insiders and retail right now, which is obviously not ideal uh, for for volatility and efficient markets and all of those wonderful things. But um, from a bear case perspective, uh, you guys highlighted the two big ones, so I don't want to take those. Um, but so we talked about these regulatory tailwinds, and and alongside that, we have to talk about regulatory headwinds. Because if federal legalization comes, uh, it probably means something called interstate commerce comes, which would erode these 55 to 60 percent gross profit margins that all of these companies are enjoying at the moment. Because if you're looking at price per per ounce that that's being sold in Washington D.C. versus something like California, it is it is vastly different. And when interstate commerce comes, we won't be paying what people are paying in D.C. everywhere. We'll be paying what people are paying in California everywhere, which. That that will be a gross profit margin headwind. So this this is a CPG industry, and, and these are CPG companies operating at fifty five percent gross profit margins. That to me doesn't seem super sustainable, and also to me that that is completely okay. These can be very successful companies operating at forty ish percent gross profit margins, and that's kind of what I expect. But the bear case is that these growth, these margin headwinds come, and we don't get the margin tailwinds alongside that. So we don't get the net income and free cash flow margin boost from these these other events, and we only get the interstate commerce. It's it, it's not likely, but again, we're, we're dealing with politicians. So who, who the heck knows what's likely and, and what's not likely. So other than that, the only other, or the only other bear case, and I, and I love to cover risks for companies I'm talking about, because I think it's just so important. Um, if federal legalization comes, what, what that also means, and Ryan alluded to this a little bit, is that um, traditional CPG and pharma companies and tobacco companies and alcohol companies are all immediately going to want to come take a piece of this 20% growth industry. And, and that that is going to lead to immense competition. And it's probably going to lead to a lot of lobbying dollars that, that could transition our, our market away from limited licensing to less limited licensing. And in that scenario, when 7-Eleven can sell us a joint, that favors these branded wholesalers that are focused on building brands instead of building retail centers around the nation. That That's why I like Green Thumb's recent pivot to wholesale so much. It's why I own a company called Presco Labs, which is very much so focused on wholesale 
um, because I think wholesale branded wholesale will very much so be the future when this industry looks more so like alcohol, where we can buy it in many different places, not just a random dispensary. So um, th those are the bear cases. Sorry, I got a little worked up there, but but I'm I'm, I'm very passionate about the space. If you hadn't noticed, it uh, yeah, I think their moat their moat if it if it comes will exist in their brands, the licenses like investing solely because they have licenses and licenses are limited seems risky to me. Um, if that's where the, uh, yeah, go ahead, Brad. It's about building the brands right now under this limited licensing system. Right. It's, it's about building as big and strong and profitable and durable as you possibly can right now before all this competition comes, which honestly makes it so that do we even want federal legalization right now? I, I, I really don't think we do. Um, I think we want to wait a few years and let these companies get big and, and strong and, and irreplaceable so that Unilever has to buy Green Thumb instead of just building a Green Thumb and replacing them. That, that, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, that's my, that's my bear case is regulations are a double-edged sword. They suck sometimes to be operating in this environment, but it's also a major barrier to entry. Uh, and it means a lot of the bigger players like an Altria or a Philip Morris aren't that attracted to the industry right now. Whereas if those lightened up, then they very easily could be. If, if their brands, if Green Thumbs brands are not established and don't have a super loyal customer base by the time that the market's totally freed up, that would be very dangerous because there will be a flood of capital in there and competition will definitely increase. That's really the bear case for me. I do see Green Thumb as a very real acquisition candidate. Uh, maybe even like Jim Beam, which would, I think, just be totally ironic. Um, that would be amazing. Yeah. Well, they, they, I think Jim Beam's owned probably by someone, unless I'm getting it wrong. It is, no, okay. yeah, it's it's American tobacco. Well, American tobacco bought him in the 60s from this guy's, the CEO's dad. Mm. All right. Yeah. What are those? Yeah. What are those alcohol brands? Anheuser-Busch, Molson Coors, uh, Const isn't there a Constellation brands? Yeah, they own, they own Canopy. So, so the interesting mm -hmm. thing is like Canopy and Altria own, or I'm sorry, uh, Constellation and Altria own Canopy. Constellation owns Canopy. Altria owns Kronos because these companies are operating in Canada. So they're federally legal. So they just said this is easier from a regulatory standpoint. And the ironic thing is these companies are so inferior from a, from a fundamental standpoint, both profit and growth and get an, op an opportunity. Um, they've really been forced into owning inferior assets. That's interesting. All right. I'll, yeah, we should probably wrap up soon. So I'll hit my fair case. They're very simple. I think everyone can kind of see these. Tax burn doesn't go away. Go away. That'll be tough. Multiple compression goes down to a sin stock level. There'll be a bit of a headwind there. And then simple one, if brands fall out of favor from consumer demand, um, that's a risk. I mean, that's an obvious risk, but it's still a risk. All right. Wrap things up more or less interested Brad, let's start with you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm, I own the company and, and don't plan on selling any shares, but I, I do want to leave uh, our, our listeners with one point um, that we are in consolidation mode in the industry right now. And there will be three or four big players um, that emerge from this consolidation mode uh, as, as by far the strongest and, and most scalable players in the space. So if, if, if you're, it may not make sense to 
to pick a green thumb or to pick a Cresco labs or to pick one of these seven or eight companies that look like they can be one of those three or four companies. And it may make sense just to go with an ETF called MSOS, which gives you broad-based exposure to the sector as a whole, um, which, which kind of eliminates the risk of picking, which is going to win in this consolidation phase um, and, and just benefiting from that 20% CAGR that we're expecting for nine years. I am going to go, I'm pretty on the fence. Uh, I'm going to go less interested. Sorry, Brad. Uh, It's not, I actually do. I really like the business. I like how it's run and I like the opportunity, but the, I have, I just don't know how the field's going to play out in five years. And those are bets that I tend to avoid. Um, I just don't know like what the prominent brands are. And then I also don't understand I don't know whether consumers, even though you said in your case, consumers stick to brands, I don't know if they get a really discounted price on something that's slightly inferior, would they go for that versus the brand they really like? I don't really understand that uh, the consumer habits as well, which is also something I tend to avoid. Brett, what about you? Um, I'm more interested, but I think, and I'm very interested in the cannabis industry because I think like a lot of the consumer industries that I mentioned before, soda, candy, uh, tobacco, alcohol, there will be big winners. And there could be, if you have the right management team, some really long-term compounders. However, right now I'm basically keeping everything on the watch list. Green Thumb seems like a great, you know, well, seems like it could be a great business if they execute, but I'm not, and maybe this is different than just a different style of investment between uh, me and Brad is uh, I'm not really into kind of the more venture and this, I wouldn't describe this as venture, but maybe earlier stage. I'm not, I'm not into investing in those. So if, if they mature over the next um, five years, the stock could be at five X and I could be very interested in investing depending on how the regulatory environment plays out. But right now I'm interested, but with almost all cannabis companies, they're just staying on my watch list. Brad, do you have anything else to close out with? I'll just say you, you mentioned venture capital and these really are pseudo private companies operating in public markets because they don't have traditional access to capital. Um, because they don't have a lot of these benefits that that public companies enjoy. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. All right, we're going to get to the stock for next week. It's my turn, and I'm going to give you guys two choices because I'm not sure if you guys want to double up on something here. So the first one, and we can push this back until the next time I come around, would be Verano, which is one of uh, Green Thumb's competitors. But I was thinking about it, and it might not be best to do a double two of almost very, you know very similar cannabis companies back to back, and the other one is going to be a little known company called Amazon that I think, you know, um, hasn't gone anywhere for like a year and a half. What, what do you guys think? Was that what, what was the name of that company? Yeah. It's uh, it's in Seattle. The, uh, <laughs> oh, little startup. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think I've seen their trucks around. It looks promising. I would, I'm going to go with, I would say Amazon. Uh, it feels weird to study the same business model twice in a row. Yeah. Maybe. We'll say Verano. Okay. Yeah. And they just threw the Amazon just threw support behind a federal legalization bill for cannabis. So I feel like that's a great gateway Segway. between Green Thumb and Verano. Yeah. yeah perfect. All right, we'll do Amazon. I still want to study some more of these. Um, uh, what are they called? MSOs? Is that the term? Yeah. Multi uh, MSOs. Yeah, yeah. I still want to study more of those. So we'll hit Verano another time. But yeah, actually, little, one more thing. Um, there's so here, I'm going to go to Twitter really quickly. There's a Twitter handle called Cashflow Free. Um, or something along those lines. And he posts cop sheets of every cannabis space uh, or every cannabis player in the space, how many stores they have, what their forward margins are looking like, what their forward multiples are, what the growth looks like. 
um, balance sheet health, and, and it's really condensed and, and really well um, thought out. So uh, I'm I'm gonna go. His handle is cashflow underscore free. So if you're interested in the space, just go there and, and you'll get all the information you need about the players. Perfect. That sounds like a great follow for anyone interested in the cannabis industry. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Remember, give us a review on Spotify or iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's the easiest way for you to help the show. Remember, we are not financial advisors. Anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.